Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. These panels have been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and Metatopia 2021. Episode 354, Spirituality Check, Spiritual Growth, Exploration, and Healing Through RPGs. Presented by Menachem Cohen and Ryan Cagle. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Spirituality Check, Spiritual Growth, Exploration, and Healing Through RPGs. My name is Menachem Cohen, and I'm working here tonight with Ryan Cagle. We'd love to see your faces, so we're on we're on Zoom tonight. So please join us in the Zoom, so we can uh, have that interaction, that visual interaction. But please do keep yourself on mute, and we'll have text questions time at the end. So I'll let Ryan, why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, uh, my name is Ryan Cagle. I am. Uh, a game designer and someone whose uh, work is at the intersections of spirituality and game design and use of games in that spiritual formation and self-discovery. Um, I guess a little more about me is just I'm a seminarian. I've been a pastor for 12 years now and uh, in various Christian contexts, and uh, I'm stoked to be here. Again, my name is Menachem Cohen. My pronouns are he, they. I am a spiritual director a rabbi and a game designer. And I have much of my work has been in the design and use of role-playing games for spiritual growth, exploration, and healing. I also love to focus on working with seminary students of all faiths. And in all this, I do have a special commitment to LGBTQIA people, sex workers, polyamorous and ethically non-monogamous people, pagans, kink fetish practitioners, unhoused people, and so on. And not because people in these communities need to be saved. Rather, in my decades in or with these communities, I've experienced people feeling undeserving of spiritual care or feeling they'll be judged by spiritual caregivers. So that's an intense focus of my work that I'm putting out there a lot these days. So let's talk about spiritual growth in games, eh? Sounds good. So... I like to start by saying that back in the 90s, I was playing a second edition psionicist, my favorite, um, my favorite class in second edition D&D. And I was, my character was talking his way out of all these situations without combat, without having to roll dice a lot of the time. And I was like, that's not me. That's just my character. I'm quiet. I'm reserved. And then one day it clicked. It is me. I'm the one saying those words and I'm developing these skills and these talents. So I eventually started learning that a lot of people used games in education, in social skill building, in therapeutic environments, like the Game to Grow folks with their um, Critical Core game that's coming out soon, and in therapy. So I started asking, how can I use these games to help people in their spiritual direction and their spiritual growth, exploration, and healing? And that's how I made it here to where we are today. I've been researching this for several years. I am... currently reworking the game Dream Chaser for one-on-one use by therapists, spiritual directors, pastoral counselors, et cetera. In, um, Pete Patricia of Imagining Games brought me on to do that work. And we thought we'd also start by defining what is spirituality. 
Ryan, how, what is spirituality to you or what, and anything else you want to say on that matter? Yeah. Uh, I just want, I want to back up just, just a hair and say that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm here because of you, uh, Menachem, uh, and I'm just so thankful for that. And, um, for me, you know, I, I cut my teeth on D and D 3.5 as a teenager and the, one of the most formative places in my adolescent just growth was that D and D group, uh, just as equal in that formation for me as, as church was and as spiritual community was. Um, and so I just remember sitting with this for a long time and knowing, wanting to figure out the intersections of those things and knowing that I couldn't be the only one doing this kind of work and bringing games into spiritual formation and stumbled upon your work. And, uh, so if it wasn't for what you've been doing out in the world, I wouldn't be here. And I'm so thankful for that. Um, so for me, spirituality, uh, it, it is this living, moving thing, this thing that deeply connects us, uh, to who we are. It deeply connects us to the people around us and whatever conception of God or the divine that we have. And so that's how I would just, um, I would uh, define spirituality as this means by which we find that deeper connection to everything around us. What about you, Menachem? I think about spirituality as answering the big questions of life. It tells us about, you know, what's right and wrong. Who am I? Why am I here? It's questions about what's my connection to the divine in the world, whatever name we have for the divine. And I, the quote, there's a quote by Howard Thurman, who was a spiritual director to Martin Luther King Jr. and other members of the civil rights era. He said, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it. Because what the world needs is more people who have come alive. And for me, spirituality is a lot about that. What makes me come alive and how do I manifest it? So what we wanted to do before we go much further is a little centering activity just to kind of bring us all into um, a good spiritual space. <clears throat> so I'm going to invite everybody to, we're going to do it for like two minutes, much shorter than it really should be. I'm going to invite you all to roll your shoulders or stretch, roll your neck, whatever feel you know, your body's calling. And then as you settle down with a little bit of elevation to your spine and some solidity to your seat, imagine your breathing coming from your diaphragm and imagine using the fullness of your lungs, not just the top, which we often default to. And as your breathing settles in, imagine taking a walk from where you are to the nearest body of water. And the weather is good, regardless of what it is outside right now. Take in the sights, the sounds, the smells, the feel of the wind, the crunching beneath your feet. And as you're noticing Imagine you notice you're holding a bundle of sticks. And make your way to the water's edge. Where you can just stand with your toes in the water. The water's warm regardless of what the reality is in your geography. And notice a piece of driftwood sitting there on the sand. So sit down. 
feet still in the water. Build a little fire with that driftwood in your sticks and light that fire. Watch the flames start to dance, change color and catch the sticks and then the wood. Feel the water, the ground beneath you, the wind. And let's take just 30 seconds of silence in the presence of the, all these four elements at a shore. Like I said, it's far too short, but we only have 60 minutes. So now um, we thought we'd talk about the theoretical underpinnings, why, this, why it works to use games in these ways. And I often start with a biblical story. So in the Bible, and it's, it's not preachy, it's not religious, but it makes a good point. David is on his roof looking out over the kingdom and he spots Bathsheba bathing and he decides he wants her. So he uses his power to have her husband Uriah sent to the front lines of the current battle with instructions to everybody else to retreat and let him leave him alone so he's killed. And that happens. And he takes Bathsheba into her house. She mourns and then they're married. It falls upon Nathan the prophet to come and tell David what a schmuck he's been. But he can't walk in and tell David this directly. He might lose his head. So he walks in and says, your majesty, may I tell you a story? And David loves stories. The Psalms are attributed to him. He says, sure. So Nathan starts, there was a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had lots of goats and sheep, And the poor man had one goat that he loved like a child. And that goat lived in the house of them. And one day he was called away on business or for a funeral and he asked the rich man to watch his goat. So he does. And while, he's, while the poor man's gone, the rich man has a traveler come by and the tradition is to feed the travelers, the wayfarers. So he has the poor man's goat slaughtered. David is irate at this. When he hears this in the story, he goes, that man should be punished. And Nathan, I always imagine trying not to smile, says, atahaish. You are the man. And David understands what he's done to Uriah. And he can't repent too much because Uriah is dead, but he, he was able to see the truth of the matter because it was a story. He had a fictional distance from the thing. He had some alibi, as, we call, as it's called in game studies. He said, it's not me, it's my character. It's not me, it's just a story. So what games do is they give us these characters for us to say, it's not me. It's my character to allow, invoke alibi, to give us that fictional distance, get the ego and defenses out of the way. And that allows us to process things, think about things that we may not have wanted to address directly. 
Ryan, thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I always love that story. I love hearing you uh, share it every time I hear it. Um, for me, the all of that just hits, hits spot on. Um, but I know in kind of preparing for tonight, I was thinking about the theological underpinnings. And for me, uh, being in the Christian tradition, uh, I'm going to gravitate to stories around Jesus, of course. And uh, this should not, again, be taken in any kind of preachy way uh, at all. But there's this story in the New Testament where Jesus and a few of his disciples are on Mount Tabor. And there is this moment of what uh, in the in the scripture that gets called um, transfiguration. And it's kind of like Jesus is glowing and all these things and everyone around him is terrified. And it's just this whole thing. Um, but that word for transfiguration, we, we always so often, I know I was taught coming up in, in the church about how it was this otherworldly kind of thing. Uh, but when you get down to the root and you get down to the the core of what's happening here is that transfiguration, it, it's, it's a, a becoming more of oneself. And so for me, so much of what the theological underpinnings for this is, is when we have the alibi in that space, we give ourselves the opportunity to become more of ourselves, which is ultimately to me what spirituality is about. It's about becoming more of who we are, uh, more true to who we are, more whole. And uh, I think games are just such a, such a fantastic um, medium to get to live into that because we do get that space, like um, as Menachem was talking about, to distance between us and our character. But what happens is that we always uh, end up living into that character in ways that we would do it. You can never fully separate yourself, but in some of those moments and those fantastical things that happen in all of our favorite role-playing games, um, you get to learn something about yourself or you get to excavate something in you that you may have not known was there. And uh, so for me, I, I really like that idea is games facilitating this ability for us to become more of who we are, um, sometimes through wild, fantastical dungeon crawls, but definitely uh, can happen. A friend of mine, Alan Turner, who's a game designer, his game is called Edregor. He once said to me, even murder hobos, yeah, Edregor is a fun game. It's um, post-apocalyptic tribal horror. And Alan himself is Black Lakota and Irish. So he made a non-colonial game from Lakota and his personal perspectives. He, even, he once said, even murder hobos in D&D are doing it for a reason. Right? And looking at Lucas's comment that it, this allows you to explore a space, a concept without the necessity for having experienced it yourself. So something is happening with a, someone who wants to feel that power, that agency of, you know, taking care of the situation with, you know, Maximum, uh, I, I, I'm, I've lost the phrase I was going to say, anyway, euphemism for force and killing. <laughs> In addition to alibi, what we're hoping happens here is bleed, right? Where things from the game affect our daily lives and things from our daily lives we put into the game. So we might put questions we're addressing or issues we're trying to think about into our characters or our characters go through situations that then help us reflect on our daily lives. And that's in game studies is called bleed. So Ryan, what sort of work have you done already in this, in this area? Yeah. So um, uh, like you, Menachem, I'm a spiritual director. I was trained at the Phoenix center of spiritual direction in Arizona. And so I've used this in small group settings, uh, playing just different uh, RPGs and then punctuating those uh, group 
like game sessions with individual kind of spiritual direction sessions. So it's kind of like a, a both and thing, um, which has been really interesting to have those conversations outside of uh, the time we've had the games together uh, as individuals. Uh, another thing for me is that as someone who's my primary spiritual practice involves journaling. Um, so I've been immediately drawn to solo journaling games. And as a designer, I've created several um, and have a few in the works now. And several of those that I hope that they ultimately will they allow this facilitation for folks to um, process emotions that they didn't know they needed to process. Um, and so for me, it's been primarily using games in spiritual direction with individuals and groups, uh, but also as in trying to create games um, that can facilitate that self-reflection and that critical reflection. Um, and for me, another really important part of the work and, and how it happens is that if we, in designing games, is that we can design games in a way they're not overtly spiritual. They're not like trying to get to the bottom of some spiritual uh, truth or anything. Um, but when we, we can design them in a way that creates moments for self-reflection, uh, moments for like um, a moral imagination exercise. Um, because oftentimes we, we have morals and we have values uh, that don't really get tested in the world around us, but they can be tested in the game. And we can use those moments to uh, reflect back on those things. And so that's primarily where I've used them. In the latest time, I think, uh, was this last week, I got to take one of my solo journaling games and turn it into a group practice uh, for one of my seminary classes, which was really interesting. What about, what about you, Menachem? Well, I also want to mention that you have your role for spirituality. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's role for spirituality is uh, where um, I have a podcast coming out that's just talking about this topic, continu continuing the conversation on this topic but also that's the primary place to where people who are interested in spiritual direction with role-playing games can get connected. And that's where I'm kind of really fleshing out this work is in that space specifically. Thank you. Yeah. So I mentioned before I'm working on um, adapting dream chaser here for one-on-one -on -one use in 60 minute sessions for therapists and social workers and spiritual directors, pastoral counselors, Pete Petrusso, the designer of the game from imagining games who is doing the Chew um, role-playing game right now on Kickstarter, by the way, he said therapists and social workers came to him often asking, how can I use this game in session? And Pete and I had talked a lot. And so Pete brought me on to do that work. I also have run spiritual discovery Dungeons and Dragons groups. And I've run those for individuals and also at the Broadway Youth Center in Chicago, where, which is a one-stop youth center for LGBTQ and our homeless youth. And I use Dungeons and Dragons. Why? Because everybody knows it, right? It's a way to get people to come in. Uh, we'll talk a little more about that in the mechanics discussion in a little bit. And I'm also currently working to start groups up there again, since the drop-in center is reopening after pandemic. I've done a lot of this self-exploration in games myself. Like I told you about my character in the nineties, but in the last five, 10 years, I have really explored my sense of gender in the world. What does it mean to have a gender? And I've played characters with, um, who have been non-binary or characters who you didn't see their faces and couldn't tell what gender they were. So how was that to interact in the world? I had a great game of Tales from the Loop at Gen Con at the last time we could be there in person before this recent one, where I played uh, the 12-year-old weirdo and his item, his, his iconic item was a corset, which he wore 
sometimes along with makeup, but he still used he, him as pronouns. So it was a way to explore what it could it mean to identify he, him, but outside of those boundaries. I tend to play a lot of characters who use a lot of drugs because I lead a pretty controlled kind of, you know, way of presenting myself in the world. And one way to let go of control is drug use. I play characters who let go of control that way. And it just happened to me kind of, even when I'm not trying to, I make a character where I got to play a bit of mage 20th anniversary um, last year. And I made a character who was supposed to, who was raised to be a mage by grandparents who trained him since he was a baby. And at 13, his ascension ceremony, nothing happened. In fact, his parents were taken. Um, they disappeared, you know, magically somehow. And he spent the next 30 years trying to manifest. And I thought it was just a cool story. But playing the game, I realized, oh, I'm, I'm 52 right now. And I didn't really start this work seriously until like the last five years. And there's a bit of a late manifesting for me. So I was processing, what does it mean? How do I feel about coming to this, my life's work um, later on you know, at this age? So speaking of mechanics, oh, go ahead, Ryan. Did you have more to say? Oh, I was, I was just going to kind of uh, piggyback off you uh, in that um, and just set talking about, you know, as, as a, someone who wasn't like raised in religion, coming to faith as a teenager was like really like um, jarring, uh, especially living in the deep South uh, because I found out really quick that Christians weren't supposed to believe in evolution, weren't supposed to do all of these different things that are very characteristic of like Christian fundamentalism uh, in the deep South. And all of a sudden I had this moment of like spiritual connection, but then all of this intellectual issues with where I found this community and I put myself in a place of contradiction. And for me, um, spiritual uh, Dungeons and Dragons 3.5, oddly enough, was the place that I got to process my faith in a safe space. I got to play people who were antagonistic to deities or completely disgruntled or who thought, you know, uh, all these, all these concepts, theological concepts, I was told that I had to adhere to as a teenager, uh, I was able to just completely reject those at the table in the safe space. And so for me also, it was just, so for me, one of the things that I think was so important coming into coming through like Dungeons and Dragons as being just as formative as my, you know, uh, spiritual community was that come time into adulthood, when I started hitting like actual faith, you know, cr crisis moments, or started questioning more overtly the, the, um, the ideas I had been handed, it really wasn't that big of a deal. Like it didn't rock my boat to think about the problem of, you know, evil in the world or whatever, because like I'd already processed it through Dungeons and Dragons. And so like, it, it's, it's crazy to me how that, and the reason I'm bringing this up, Menachem, is because you, after you look back, you realize how much work you had been doing in those settings on yourself and, and stuff and seeing that come through. And so that was the same thing for me. It was, it was afterwards that I realized how much, being at the table playing role-playing games helped me um, stay grounded in the middle of a, and connected to something uh, connected to spirituality, despite all of these ideas that I was not necessarily um, ready to agree with. So. Yeah. We're, like I said, we all do this anyway. What if we put a little bit of intention into it to say we're intentionally going to try and learn. So we say in the description that we're going to talk about, how to do this in games through mechanics, role play, setting, and story. So, how, Brian, do you see us using mechanics to do this work? 
Yeah, uh, you know, that one of the things I love about this is that, you know, I think me and you went back and forth uh, just talking about it uh, over the last several months is how different mechanics can like completely oppose mechanics in certain games can still facilitate this response or facilitate this opportunity uh, for spiritual discovery or self-discovery. Um, and for me, you know, mechanically, um, different things, I, I, I tend to lean towards less crunchy things because I don't want to do math at the table uh, and uh, I want to do more role playing. And so mechanically rules lighter kind of things typically work better for me in my, in the way that I approach uh, my own kind of gameplay and how I use things. Um, but I think it, it, it can still like, you know, it can be just as formative in the like super crunchy kind of old school uh, style role playing games as well. Uh, I know there's several games. I, I, I hope you talk about it more because if anyone here that's watching this or watching it after gets a chance to do Dream Chaser with you and learn about Dream Chaser, they absolutely need to do it because uh, I love the mechanics in that game, uh, the storytelling mechanics and uh, how it, it's there's a lot of structure there, but it, it's there in a way that allows for so much expression and depth. And so going to just bump that uh, up. And if you get a chance, uh, definitely do that with Menachem. Thank you. Yeah, especially interested in working with people who want to try and use it in their practices. So a game, a question I always ask is, do I want to mechanize spirituality, right? Do I want to have a stat or a counter or tokens for spiritual stuff? So in the game Dream Chaser, you do have belief points and you can use those belief points to reroll dice or take narrative control. But as I'm working on the game, I'm thinking I, I've really avoided integrating that into the work I'm doing to, for one-on-one -on -one use to have some sort of way to track the game, to track belief points and have them somehow count for your spiritual progress. But mechanics do matter. I mean, I say even Dungeons and Dragons works for this, you know, on, on the crunchier end of things. But me And mechanics matter in that in old school D&D, how did you advance? You got experience points by killing monsters. Right? So the game encourages you to kill monsters. So your players are going to gravitate towards that. But in like the Doctor Who role-playing game by Cubicle 7, when it comes to conflict, it goes talkers, doers, movers, fighters. So the game mechanic itself um, encourages you not to fight. Right? And games like Thirsty Sword Lesbians, you get mechanical benefit from flirting and building relationships with other players, right? So the game in its mechanics is encouraging it. And 5e has some space for this, like the new flaws, I, they're not new anymore, flaws, ideals, bonds, right? Where you, you build some you know, uh, personality into your character. They give you room to explore things, but they haven't mechanized it. And sometimes I'm really glad they haven't. Other times I wish they would mechanize it just a little bit because people tend to ignore it. I think even on one of the online character sheet things, you, it was even hard to find the bonds, ideals, and flaws. Like it was like, oh, we don't even need those in a lot of people's opinions. But it does give that space to, to really put issues into your characters. And games like Itris B, which is a European game about a vaguely European 1920s city, uses, it does have randomizers, it uses cards for resolution, but it has chance cards, which we call the weird cards when we play, where you pull a weird card and all of a sudden it says, you're playing the underside of the city where everything is the opposite of what it is now. Or 
one character has to stand up and give a press conference about the scene that was about to play out. But instead of playing it out, one character answers questions from the other players as a press conference. Right. So that mechanic has you flipping over in your mind and twisting things around. So mechanics matter in what, how you set the game up. But when it gets too crunchy, I, when my spiritual D and D discovery, discovery, spiritual discovery, D and D groups, I was dropping roles left and right. I was skipping through things and, you know, hand waving that something succeeded in order to move the story along instead of, you know, doing the numbers and the math, you know, and even, even in combat. We also talked about role play and setting and story. So Ryan, what thoughts do you have about how those can help us in spiritual discovery and games? Yeah, I think as far as role play, we, we really hit on it uh, a lot already. But, you know, one of the biggest things for me is that a role play allows you to test the waters on new ideas. It allows you to test waters on worldviews that you might not feel safe expressing anywhere else. Um, you know, it, it, it was really nice for, you know, a, a kid coming to faith, living in fundamentalist Christian South to be able to play and someone who is antagonistic against the idea of religion or gods in this game. Um, you know, it, it allows us to try out new stuff. It allows us to explore our gender, uh, our sexuality. Even it allows us to explore all these ideas when we commit to it. And I, I'm someone um, who like role playing is. I have a lot of. Uh, like when I play it, like I try my best to be in character because I know like how formative it can be uh, and also how, how much more fun it is. And that's where, you know, not to go all the way back to the mechanics thing, but that's why I prefer really role play heavy games versus mechanic crunchy games and granted crunchy games can be played heavily role played. But uh, so as far as like role play goes, like we really hit those waters. We've already like talked about it a lot, but you know, one of the things to me is that, when you really commit to a character and you commit to these flaws or um, these strengths or these, this alignment, even um, it allows you to begin to try something out. Even if it's not intentional, you could just, you could play a game where you just completely, you know, uh, I think we've talked about it. We're not going to Troika and just completely roll up a random character. And you'll realize, you know, in the session, you're, there are certain things about the character that are reflective of you and vice versa. There's certain things that characters doing that uh, if you were to really sit down and reflect back on it, you might, realize this because you couldn't do that in real life um and so like there's just so much there that happens in that space it, it creates a sacred circle uh for you to just experiment with anything and everything uh whether that be drug use in games or or whatever you know uh as someone who's like deeply committed to uh a type of pacifism is like being able to you know kill an ogre is like really cool uh you know and it, then it also makes me reflect back on like why did I really want to kill something so bad in this D and D game <laughs> uh, or whatever it is? Um, so like role-playing allows us to really just try out whole new worldviews and which is such a gift uh, because so many times we live in, we live in a world or we live in communities or families where any other worldview is hostile to the communities we find ourselves in. Um, and as far as setting and story goes, I just think, you know, um, I think that there's not this one idea like we talked about, you know, D and D can do it. Murder hobos can do it. Dream chaser can do it. Solo games can do it. Um, different settings and stories can all facilitate this, this work. Um, and you could be more intentional with some, but I think the biggest thing is that um, when our settings and stories, you know, it, it's going to be a little harder to be like reflective. If like the setting is like, you're going to this dungeon, you're getting, you're killing everything in it. You're getting the loot. Uh, but it still can be versus games that are very like story driven. Um, and so those settings with like 
more robust stories or opportunities to have the freedom to explore, I think facilitate better, uh, but they don't necessarily have a monopoly on the possibilities that take place either. What about you? Yes, ditto. But, uh, and one thing that you, I was thinking of while you were speaking was the relationship questions in games like Thirsty Sword Lesbians or Kids on Brooms, where during your session zero, you're asking to the left or to the right or, or picking people different relationship questions. And you build a lot of role play material through those questions. And you can build up a lot of issues about why you trust or don't trust this person. And they can, you, know, you can put a lot of your questions about your life into some of those relationships that you build. And you then get consent from other characters, right? Because every time you answer one of those relationship-based questions, you are asking, is this okay with you? You know, that we uh, got in a huge fist fight two years ago and we haven't talked to each other since then, right? Is that okay? You know, and that could be about how you resolve conflict and violence in your life, for example. And also when I run spiritual discovery D&D games, I tend my goal is to meet with each player for a couple hours to make their character, right? Individually, ideally. So we can really talk about, well, oftentimes it's introducing them to the game, but also talk about why they want to play this game, why they're attracted to playing a game that's spiritual discovery D&D. Um, with the youth who are experiencing homelessness, it's often hard to get them to do that. So I didn't get to do it all the time. But one moment that came up in the group, which ended up being a beautiful moment. I was working with this group and one guy showed up for the first day. It was the second or third game. And I explained to him the different kinds of characters he could be. And he was, his appearance was the kind that people whose fear is ruling them would call a thug, right? He was black. He had the sagging pants. He had twists and he walked with some swag. And I explained the characters and he goes, I want to be a healer. And his friend next to him was like, no, you can be a kick-ass barbarian with a giant battle axe. And the guy was like, no, I want to be a healer. And I you know, tried to contain my excitement and just said, okay, we'll make you a healer. But this is the idea that he could visualize being a healer in this game, which is an image he doesn't have. It was so, unfor- so beautiful. Unfortunately, COVID cut that group short and we didn't get to dive too deep into it. But he got to role play the idea of healing people, you know, and, ha- and saving people from dying. And that meant, it seemed really a powerful idea to him. I always love when you share that story. That's such a good, yeah. such a perfect example, I think, of like some of the benefit that happens at the table. I mean, the population changes at the drop-in center. I'm hoping though he still comes around and gets to come back to the groups. Um, I don't know, we'll find out in the next couple of months. We mentioned earlier GM'd games and GM full games, and what are some the pros and cons and distinctions of using each kind? You want to say more about that now? Yeah, um, I think the older I get, the more I like GM lists or GM full games. Um, but as you were talking earlier about um, consent, about in the group, like building those relationships in games like Kids on Pikes, or um, that's one of the things I was thinking about as far as like the difference between like an overall, like a, a, GM, a GM full or a GM list game. Um, most of them, at least the ones that I've played, really that that inter uh, player consent has to take place often on things. And I don't know, I just think back, I just reflecting how often our culture just, just doesn't understand consent and how like 
how much of a benefit those kind of games could be, especially especially to teens and young, younger folks um, who've not grown up in areas or not grown up in a world where they've either been told they can have agency and draw boundaries and, uh, you know, have or they've um, don't know they consistently transgress boundaries, whether that just be like, you know, normal, weird social things, uh, not necessarily something like bad, but um so for me like i don't know that's what i was thinking of when you were talking about consent earlier like at, uh, at the table around like uh games like kids on bikes um one of the things i know like for me in my spiritual direction practice i i practice the evocative method so it's called spiritual direction but it, it's very rarely very directive at all um i'm not a guru i'm not here to like tell people what they need to do to be better spiritually connected uh, i'm here to help facilitate cultivate a space for those things to happen for self-discovery to happen um but gm games can still do that uh, you can still be a gm and not you know be like this overtly controlling person um and so like they, there's still enough space there i think for player agency in gm games granted that goes back to what kind of gm you are uh, but i still i still tend to lean towards gm lists or gm full games um just as far as an enjoyment level for me and like those collaborative moments. Um, but GM games can, as someone who you can be an evocative game master, you can be someone who's cultivating a space for discovery to happen, even in games like D and D um, and not be like, you know, you have this very strict plan where you're going to make sure every, you know, bad thing happens until the players go left, no matter how many times they go right or whatever. Um, so I, I think that's um, that, that, it can happen in other ways too. Um, and then uh, solo games, uh, just to jump on that, I love solo games. I think I said that earlier, um, just as someone who's like journaling, it's a very important spiritual practice for me. You know, uh, if I can pretend to be an astronaut, um, struggling on a spaceship and that sometimes can, you know, uh, that's a rich and alone reference, but uh, it, it can tell me, it can tell me something about myself when I go back and read through those entries or, or, broadcast whatever game it was um so what about you Menachem as far as like how do you feel about how GM GM full GM list games play into um what happens at the table or in spiritual discovery or self-discovery I was listening earlier to the Diceless panel and Chance Feldstein made a comment about how games with less randomization allow for more personal transformation and so I was thinking about that in context of our discussion and I tend to agree, but I also love, we brought up Troika earlier, that when you get a random character, it kind of increases alibi. It's certainly not me. That's just some random character I got. So it can allow for us to do that work. But in a, in a GM game, players don't know so much what's going to happen. You know, in a, in a old, more traditional GM style game, we don't know what's going to happen. And that unpredictability can allow for exploration to happen and discovery. Because you discover how you react to things you don't know what's going to happen. In a GM full game or, or GM list where everyone's sharing the GM responsibilities, players can help set things up in the narrative that allow them to explore the questions they want. So they have pros and cons. I wouldn't say one's better than the other. And you already, you already said everything about solo games. So. No, I'm, I'm sure you have great opinions on those. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that I, I did want to bring back up or wanted to, to say about GM full or GM list games, one of the things I think they have such a great benefit for is like um, what it means to like imagine new possibilities as, with a group of people. 
uh, whether that be like, you know, like I even think of like just like world building games um, and how like that can cultivate like within a group, uh, a, a moral imagination about imagining what a world can look like. Uh, hope punk, I think uh, is typically can be good settings for that world building and like hope punk, hope punk settings or solar punk or whatever. Um, to me, that's like a really good exercise, a group thing. Like um, so often spirituality is very much we it, in our culture, especially just in being Western Western uh, Americans and um, living where we do often spirituality can, can be so individualized. Um, and so that's where like on the other end of like uh, spirituality and games, like world building games to me invites a whole group into it and it becomes, it can be a group practice to imagine these new possibilities um, for worlds because like it's, it's easy to walk out your front door, turn on the news and be like very distraught and have a very like dystopian sense about the future of our planet or our country or, or whatever. Um, but so games can offer GM full or GM list games and, and GM games, but there's something particular I think about like GM full, like world building games allows groups to come together to all practice this moment of imagining new possibilities in the world. And that hopefully bleeds out into the way they live and how we live to be able to go through and, you know, realize like there's other alternatives for the way things are happening in our world. And we can, we can also build new worlds in, in the real world uh, outside of the table too. Yeah. I was going to say we had one more thing to do before questions, but I hope punk is a idea and approach it's uh, uh, Roland, Andrea Roland, I think I get it right. You said grim hope punk is the opposite of grimdark. Pass it on was a uh, tweet she put out several years ago. And it's the idea of that the key components in hope punk are um, resistance to empire, right? So in hope punk can still have grim settings, but in the end, there's, there's the whole theme of resisting empire. So like the new Shira is very much hope punk, right? Um, Sam and Frodo are very much hope punk, right? Whereas um, Noble Bright is like, we fit, we solve the problem and everything's great. That's Aragorn, right? He's the king, he takes over and everything's beautiful. So, but hope punk has, uh, yeah, read the, read the definition that was put in the uh, Twitch and read some more about it and, uh, and look up Roland. So we just want to recommend a few other games that we haven't recommended yet. And then we're going to go to questions. So, I mean, or say a little more about the games that we did recommend. So like Itris B, I already spoke about. And in that game, the limits of what your character can do are defined by everyone who's playing at the table. You can play it GM'd or GM full. So you could explore anything in any way that the table wants, that the table allows. You can be playing Illuminati type characters or playing, you know, uh, you can be playing Galactus and, you know, Eternals or if you wanted. And so it just be allows that reflection. Um, there's a game called Impo the Perverse by Nathan Pauletta. It's Jacksonian Gothic, Jacksonian horror, but Gothic. And each character has literally an imp that rides on their shoulder that is urging them towards their, their darkness, their perversity. And as you play through the game, you struggle to, to not give in to the imp. So, you know, that's a game about not giving into urges or how you do. And if you do give in all the way, you become the next monster that the group is fighting and you, you become then the, the game master uh, in the next round of the game. And Strings is a uh, supplement by Density Games where characters set up 
an ideal they have in the world. And then if they find themselves on the edge of death, the game master can challenge that ideal, turn it into showing the dark side of the ideal. And if they accept this new twist as the truth, they don't die, right? So it's a way to replace death mechanics in some games. So that has beautiful and possible implications for games. Any other games you want to add that, to the discussion, Ryan? Yeah, absolutely. I know um, grasping, as far as like thinking about world building games, um, one of my favorites um, that I've just, in my, I've watched a, uh, uh, a live stream of it. I think it's uh, really cool. Uh, grasping Nettles uh, by Adam Bell. It's where you basically play uh, this community over the course of generations, which I think it just creates this cool opportunity to watch through this generation's passing and, and world building through it, which is a really cool thing. Um, if you haven't caught on, I'm really big into world building games. Um, there's a cool game called Superstition, uh, where you are essentially like the town Oracle. It's a, it's a solo game. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of the person that's by. Uh, I think it was kickstarted at this last year's inquest. Um, but you're like the town's Oracle shaman or whatever, who doesn't like really believe in any of the stuff but the people come to you and you have to like come up with rituals and things to help them in their spiritual and dealing with their problems and to me that just really hit home with a lot of stuff because um, there's definitely people who come to me as as a pastor with things i don't really share that belief but it's not my job to tell them like hey your belief is not i don't think it's real or i don't think it's or whatever it's i honor it and how can i help them find meaning in it or whatever so superstition is a good one uh, I'm trying to look at the ones I, I wrote down. Uh, one of the games is just like, so like D&D, again, super crunchy. People know what it is, but I've really defaulted to Quest, um, which is um, kind of, it's just a, it's a D20 game, uh, but it's really easy just jumping in, but still like fantasy. I, I've used, that's what I've been using uh, in my group script direction settings uh, that way. Um, a couple, there's plenty of solo journaling games I could list off. Um, but one game that I, I'm not recommending it yet uh, because I haven't played it, but one that seems like a little more like could be really focused in on this is a game called Afterlife, which essentially is like you die and it gets botched and then you have to go through and like rediscover your memories to pass on finally to the next world. And um, maybe that's a little more strictly it, it's not meant to be like the spiritual discovery game, but and those themes are a little more on the nose, but uh, I definitely think it could be one, a good one. Um, and I've even used like games like Questlandia in group in group settings uh, for this kind of work too. So there's a lot of good games out there, I think. Uh, another game is The Quiet Year, which I feel like people just really know about it. It's a, it's a map game, uh, but you're, you're basically building this community with others that's uh, coming, like, coming forth after a collapse, after apocalypse, essentially, or after a destruction. Um, so those are, those are some of the games that I would definitely recommend. Cool. Yeah. I, I'll just mention Dream Chaser again, a great game for, for exploring things. I want to say that I, what, again, whatever game you're playing, you can bring the ideas and the goals to. And I read a lot of these other games and then I incorporate them into whatever game I'm playing. I read them as references, not as full games. So anyway, now let's go to questions. Lucas, what do we have? Great. So we have a few different ones. One is kind of asking about medium. So saying dancing, performances, masks are common tools of spiritual transfiguration. And how are games different than these other mediums in this change, in this spiritual nature? 
Sure. The first thing that comes to mind is that a lot of media we watch and have a response, but we're not interacting necessarily, right? There's plenty of interactive dance in other medias, but in a game, it's an interactive process where you are moving through the game with other people and your character. So this that interactive nature, I think is the biggest difference I can think of. And Ryan, do you want to respond there or good next question? I, I, I would disagree with um, Anakam on that um, as far as interactive media. I do, I do think obviously certain things can facilitate that reflective stuff, but the, the interaction I think is what's, what's most important because you're, you're participating in it. And I think, um, well, and whether, whether it be other social media, you're, you're participating by viewing in some sense, but when you're really getting in, getting into the nitty gritty of it, I think it, it is much more likely to facilitate those kind of reflective moments. In I see moments. the comment from 10 star games, but you interact with dancing. I was assuming it was media that we were consuming versus participating in. So when you do dancing, right, when you make art yourself, that's a whole process. When you're watching art or going to a museum, watching dancing, it's not as interactive an experience. We've got another question that's, you mentioned, you know, using Dungeons and Dragons for therapy, how you can use any game to kind of reach these places. But for me, that game is a game that has a lot of mechanics that focus around violence and wealth in a lot of ways. And how do you deal with a game where the mechanics are sometimes counter to the things that you might be trying to explore? Because for example, you know, if you are, as you said, if you're pacifist, you can explore violence, but if you are violent, you can't really explore pacifism. It's much, much harder. I mean, I would say if you're someone who who leans towards being not necessarily violent, but your gut reaction is to to punch someone in the face, whether you actually act on it or not, but that's your immediate like internal process, then it then it is just as applicable to to try out pacifism in a game because then you got to be maybe maybe you are playing D and D and you're going to try to figure out how you can solve every possible problem without lifting a finger without physically fighting someone, uh, which granted in D and D is going to be a lot harder than some other game that's mechanically bent towards that. So I think definitely if you're, depending on what you're trying to explore, um, you got to find the right fits of those things sometimes. Or I, I know in, as a pastor, like if someone comes to me and they say like, you know, like I've been getting up every morning and read the Bible or in praying or whatever, but it doesn't feel like it's working. And like, I've been doing it for six months. It's not working. Okay. Try something else. Let that go. Find some, let's find something else that you can connect with uh, because ultimately not, not utilitarian in, in like the extreme philosophical sense, but like if you're doing something that is not, if you're, whatever you're doing is, is not really working and you've really given it your best shot. Um, it's okay to figure out a different way to do it. So like if I am playing a crunchy game or I'm leading a crunchy game, uh, like Menachem, I think he, he alluded to this earlier. Like I'm not going to let all the mechanics get in the way of like real role play story, like good things reflected happening in the game. Like if I need to just cut it out and wave my hand past it, then that's, that's what you do. Uh, because it, it really, if you're, especially if you're using this specifically for that, uh, because ultimately those mechanics should be there to facilitate gameplay, facilitate a better experience. And sometimes the mechanics, we all know they get in the way of something. So you just ignore it, uh, especially if it's D and D, right? Um, so. Right. And I think in a way we can't 
railroad people into having an experience, any experience, right? We can't, we can't really make them feel a, any particular emotion. So if they don't want to do the exploration, they're not going to. On the other side, sometimes you can play a game, whatever game it is, and you're choosing to explore something about yourself and no one else at the table has to know you're doing it, right? You don't have to tell the whole table that you're putting this into your character to, th to think about your dead parents or whatever it might be. You just do it. And whatever the mechanics are, that's you role play to to think about those matters and those issues. And I would second, you know, put drop mechanics as much as you can for the table you're at, or switch games if the game isn't working for what you want to happen. So then we have some questions more on the game design side. If you have this in mind, how can we design games to be more instructive in this manner, or to have mechanics that support? these kinds of explorations, uh, specifically noting how the law, chaos, good, evil axis is difficult to work with in, the, in this way a lot of times. And can you, what are ways you can design systems to support people in these processes? Safety mechanics in your games are very good to allow, to make, give people that space where they feel comfortable having these discussions. Asking for backstory and personality quirks and flaws and ideals that, so you know what your characters value. So, and then you can also put them into challenges. For example, I've found, I play a lot of games with adolescents, um, my own adolescent and other people. And I tend to put them into moral quandaries where the answer might be gray, right? So I choose the, the I don't just have them go into a dungeon, there's cobalts. You know, I have them find the cobalts in their families, right? You know, I'm not, I haven't actually done an example I'm, and I'm not bringing up an actual example, but you give them situations in the game as a game master that need a little more nuance or a little more reflection on how they're going to handle the situation. Ryan? Yeah, and as far as like, I totally agree, um, in Aquaman. As far as like, like designing like wholly new, like totally new games, or like if you're you're like a game designer, you know, I think one of the things for me is that like all the games I've designed, they could none of them could be played in a way that like is just over. I mean, they could like overtly be used that way, I guess. Um, but like, I don't, I haven't designed any games with the thought like, hey, how can I make this person think spiritually or, or deeply about this thing? Um, so there, there is a given or participate, like a give and take because people are all going to come to games with different things. We, we've all had those games we've played where we've not really been really into the character, but we've done it anyway for the sake of the story or the sake of the table, right? Uh, but as far as like designing games, uh, I definitely think, you know, those reflective things, any kind of games that you can add uh, extra layers to so you're not just playing like you know a level one fighter with a, a great sword or whatever you're playing someone who has a story who has a history and so um sometimes those are given like some some people like when they come to the table they play games they want to think through that whole backstory they want to think through like what makes this character who they are or uh, this trope uh but i definitely think certain games already have that stuff built in you know like there's games like you're playing a particular trope you're playing whether that be toast from the loop or kids on bikes like those that you're playing a particular type of person in this town, you know? And so um, going even from simple questions of like character creation that have nothing to do with abilities, like, you know, what is, what, what is your, like your goal in, in this game? Like, what is your goal? What do you want to achieve in your life? Or what is your fear? You know? And so like those reflective, like kind of um, 
uh, story, like additive things, I think really can, we can use those in games. Like I, I just, I just designed a uh, horror game for Halloween uh, this month. And one of the things that's critical to the game is like you reflecting back on like what your, your fear is. And then also how, you know, everyone else that's in this. And so like, um, maybe like you come to the table and you, you just bring up a totally random figure or maybe bring up an actual fear you have, you know? Um, so when designing games, I don't know that I, I wouldn't go into like designing games in a way that like, I'm going to make a game that is like really going to push people to like think spiritually, so to speak. Uh, but anything that causes calls for any kind of pause to reflect in, in any way to think like really well about what your character is doing and who they are. I think any of those kind of mechanics make it happen. Um, and definitely like mechanics that don't make it easy to resolve things. Like, you know, it's easy to swig an ax at something. Um, but if there's more creative problem solutions that you can bake into a game, like the Doctor Who game um, that Menaka mentioned, you know, I think those kind of mechanics create more diversity at the table for people to live into different styles of playing and different resolutions. And so we have, oh, sorry. I think I also want to mention your stats. What kind of stats do your characters have? Do they have physical combat related stats or they have stats like karma or do they have stats like belief or something like that, that kind of frame what the game will include? So one final question, then we'll reintroduce and close up. We have about four more minutes is can there be too much alibi or that the bigger the mask, the more it reveals? On the flip side of that, how do you stop there from being too much bleed? The poster finds RPGs incredibly intense because they reveal so much or maybe too much of yourself at various times. Really wonderful question. Big, tough question. I mean, alibi says it's not me it's my character. And that, that becomes an excuse for all sorts of horrible behaviors at the table, which it's related to, it's what my character would do, right? So I, I think safety mechanics are gonna help in that regard and table agreements of what is acceptable. Um, and how do you stop bleed? I think you have to have ways, again, safety mechanics to say, we need to stop now. I need to step away from the table. I need to process this. Um, briefing and debriefing. I forgot to talk about how in my D&D games, we do a meditation and we have opening questions. And then we have closing reflection questions. We don't do a lot of tell me about your mother at the table, but we have a few minutes for each person in the group sessions to process. So there is that kind of process you know, of leaving, entering and leaving the, the magic circle of play. Now, the idea of magic circle is there's a space of play where rules, daily rules of life are different but you don't walk down the street kicking a soccer ball all the time. Most people don't. You don't roll dice to determine what you're going to do most of the time, unless you're doing a, a fun book project. But when we enter that magic circle, we, we delineate entering and we delineate leaving so that we can kind of, in LARPing, they call that de-rolling, right? Where you can step away from what had happened in the game and hopefully have a chance to process it. I know that's not really a great answer, but maybe Ryan has a few more thoughts. Yeah, I, I don't know that I could add anything of like real value value to that. I think one of those one of the big things is is trying to be like obviously if you're you're in a spiritual set, if you're like doing it with someone like me or Menachem and like we're in that setting, we're going to try to facilitate uh, to help that be healthy, right? But if you're just like someone who's like just doing RPG, you're having a game uh, and you're just playing, but you're finding yourself like really 
caught up in the emotions of it or, or whatever. Uh, I think it's important like to be able to like, if you know that, that it's going to be that, then you, you're going to have to honestly take the time to like be able to realize I need to debrief. I need to step back. Um, because, or if you're a GM, then you can offer that. Like you can like, Hey, you know, like I know we all just had fun. We slayed a dragon or whatever, but like, let's just take a minute and just like reflect back, like the best parts, the worst parts of the game, like all of it. Um, and it doesn't have to be some like spiritual thing to do. It's just, it's just a good, healthy way to like really in the game in general, I think. Um, but if your GM's not doing that or you're not doing it in a setting like, uh, me and Menachem provide, then it's, then to some extent it has to land on you to be able to think, go, how, how can I enter this? And then how can I exit in a way that's healthy for me? Okay. Well, thank you so much for this panel. If you would to like to reintroduce yourself where we can find you and what you do. Hi, my name is Menachem Cohn, he, they. I am a spiritual director, rabbi, and tabletop game designer, and I do this work. You can find me at what whatmakesyoucomealive.net. Um, I'm also what makes you come alive on Facebook. And um, there's, all my, there's all the information in the Twitch for the rest of it. I'm Ryan Kegel, he, him. I am uh, the designer at Paradox Press Games and then Role for Spirituality. So Paradox paradoxpress.games is uh, where you can find all my games and then the spiritual game stuff you can find at rollforspirituality.com. I guess I want to mention that the, I'm on a, I'm on a streaming twist with the cast gamers, the community of applied spiritual and tabletop gamers. And we play games with a bunch of professionals and then debrief and brief. And we also have a podcast called a stream called gaze of our lives, queer people playing queer games that so we also do this briefing and debriefing questions. And I'm going to go hang on a panel talk in about a few minutes after I, Breathe for a few seconds. If anyone wants to continue to talk over there, the panel talk on the Discord. Thank you all for being here. And thank you, Lucas. And thank you, Mickey.